0: Welcome. You're listening to the Rescue Radio, a podcast by Portland Mountain Rescue, and I'm your host, Anya Viktorovich. On May 30th, 2002, nine members of a climbing party fell into crevasse on the south side of Mount Hood. Mount Hood is not only Oregon's highest mountain, but also due to its accessibility, it is most-climbed volcano in the Pacific Northwest. It is estimated that about 10,000 people climb it each year. One of the PMR rescue leaders responding to the 2002 accident was Steve Rollins, who agreed to talk to us today. Hi Steve! Hey! Steve has been a PMR rescue leader since 2001, with the unit for 25 years. He served as a PMR president and got to see the unit grow throughout the years and is currently very active with the unit. So Steve, you were one of the first on the scene and also you were the rescue field commander. Take us back to the day of the accident. Do you remember what the dispatch said about the accident and how many people needed help?
1: Yeah. Well, I remember that was a nice uh, spring day and uh, I was at work uh, with one of my coworkers that also volunteered for Portland Mountain Rescue. And back then we used pagers instead of cell phones and both of our pagers went off at the same time. So we kind of had that uh uh-oh moment. And when I read the message that, uh, I think the original message was eight or nine climbers had fallen in a crevasse immediately I knew it was going to be a big mission. Um, oftentimes when you get an initial call out, the information is not very accurate. Um, but I still was trying to fathom how do eight or nine people fall in a crevasse all at once. Where on the mountain did this happen? Is it somewhere over on white river glacier or is it the Berg Um, so probably a hundred things went through my mind all at once. Uh, but I basically dropped what I was doing at work and zipped off home to get my rescue gear and head up the mountain.
0: Describe the scene for us.
1: Um, well, arriving at Timberline, it was already kind of chaotic. Uh, I talked with one of the sheriff's deputies who gave me a choice to take my team up in a snowcat or to take a helicopter, uh, wait for a helicopter, and get a helicopter ride up the mountain. And I actually chose uh, the snowcat for a couple of reasons. One, Snowcats are more reliable. I didn't know how long we'd be waiting for a helicopter. And helicopters can have problems. They can have mechanical issues. They can have weather issues. If I went with a snowcat, I knew we were going to get up there. So uh, I assembled uh, a team of about five rescuers, uh, including myself, and we put some basic gear together and uh, jumped in a snowcat and started up the mountain.
0: How high up were they able to take you?
1: See the snowcat took us as about as high as they could and that was one uh very motivated snowcat driver uh he nearly got the snowcat all the way up to the side of Crater Rock. Uh yeah it was it was pretty it was pretty exciting and in fact uh I remember thinking that's far enough I'll get out and walk from here cuz you're staring down White River headwall thinking if the snowcat starts to lose it we're we're all going down that um so we got as high as we could in the snowcat and jumped out and started uh, hiking. Um, I remember Mike Lemming, who unfortunately is a, a member that has passed away, but uh, he was just a, a monster on the mountain. Uh, his physical fitness was phenomenal. So, you know, I told Mike, kick steps for the rest of us, go. And Mike probably grunted and <laughs> off he went. <laughs> um, and it didn't take us too long to kind of get up towards, to round the um, critter rock and up to the Hogsback. back. As we reached the hog's back, uh, we encountered the first subject that was involved in the original climbing accident. And this was kind of your quintessential walking wounded. Nobody was paying attention to this guy. He was just sitting quietly by himself and he looked terrible. Um, so, and I didn't know what, what else was going on, but I took two of my team members, one of which happened to be a nurse, and uh, assigned them to take care of this guy and led the rest of uh, my team up towards uh, the Hogsback. Back then, we didn't have the ability to communicate directly from the ground, directly to the helicopters. If I had to coordinate anything with them, I would have to call down to Timberline, relay my message through the sheriff, who would then talk on a different radio to the aircraft, and it was such an urgent uh, rescue and so chaotic that really on the ground we were just scrambling to keep up with the helicopters uh, that were coming in as as fast as we could you know prepare for them uh, basically in fact um as i was hiking up to the hog's back uh, the first helicopter evacuated one of the patients before i was really fully on scene
0: i can only imagine how chaotic it must have been so, what did you find when you got to Hogsback?
1: Upon arriving at the the Hogsback, it was really chaotic. We had lots of people trying to help out, lots of climbers, um, you know, not trained mountain rescue volunteers, but volunteering their time to try to help out. Um, there were patients all over the place. Um, I remember inclu- uh, encountering uh, one female subject that had not been seriously injured, but had witnessed the climbing accident. And, um, she was so psychologically shaken that she was needing a full belay just to work her way down from the, the Bergstrand crevasse to the lower hogsback. And I think, I think two people were actually belaying her. Um, she had lost her ice axe in the fall. So that certainly contributes to a, a lack of confidence descending the mountain as well.
0: During that rescue, one of the helicopters crashed, right? So, um... I'm sure this was pretty exciting. Can you talk about that?
1: As the helicopter that ended up crashing came in to evacuate um, a patient, I was trying to clear everybody away from the Bergshrun because there were just far too many people below the helicopter. And I have to tell you, uh, it wasn't in the back of my mind that the helicopter could crash. It was actually in the forefront of my mind. When we uh, train for helicopter operations, we're always... um, stressed how much uh, they're at the limit of their capabilities flying and hovering at those uh, elevations, and especially during the heat of the day. Um, so I remember yelling at everybody, if you're not directly involved in this hoist operation, I want you to go down to the lower hogsback. But unfortunately, I could not slow the helicopter down, who came in and began to hover above us. I also suspect that there was perhaps a degree of this is really sexy. I want a good story to tell. I'm going to stay right here underneath the helicopter going on. But bottom line is people didn't evacuate the area and I could not hold off the helicopter for it. So as the helicopter began to hover over us, um, you can't imagine what it's like to be like under one of those. You have a hundred and some mile an hour rotor wash coming down that... Uh, picks up every little bit of snow and ice and just sandblasts your exposed skin. Uh, You can yell in somebody's ear and can hardly be heard. Um, Your pack straps are whipping around and just beating you to uh, pieces. And you really are just in such sensory overload that if you haven't trained under a helicopter like that, it's just, it's almost bewildering. So the woman that was trying to descend the mountain and needed a full belay was next to me, and I was trying to cover her from the rotor wash with my parka and making sure that she felt secure. And um, something caught my attention, and I think possibly it was a change in the rotor wash, but I'm really not a 100% certain. But something got me to look up at the helicopter, and I saw it kind of pivot and pirouette, and I was wondering what it was doing, And then it dropped down, and the refueling nozzle, which looks a bit like a cannon sticking out of this military aircraft, um, it struck the snow. And I knew that wasn't supposed to happen, and that's when I knew this is going poorly. Um, That moment uh, was just surreal. Everything completely slowed down. Uh, I had tunnel vision. It felt like looking through a toilet paper tube. Um, I could see... The helicopter and the helicopter crashing, but I couldn't see anything else. Um, and to go from a hundred mile an hour rotor wash and complete sensory overload where you can't hear or say anything. As soon as the rotor sheared off, it went to dead silent. And, uh, I remember hearing some screams and I remember hearing the helicopter go kerchunk, kerchunk, kerchunk as it rolled down the mountain and, uh, I remember thinking to myself, is it going to explode? And I was thinking, maybe I will jump in the front because out of the two being burned alive or fallen 20, 30 feet in the crevasse, I'll take the, the fall. Uh, so it was uh, an exciting moment.
0: So as a rescuer, what are your thoughts at that moment?
1: So when the helicopter came to rest, uh, my first concern was not everybody running to the helicopter and... Uh, you know, leaving a patient or, or patients behind. So um, I tried to make sure that we had uh, mountain rescuers staying with the patient that we were about to hoist from the, uh, from the Bergschrund. Uh and then I descended down to the helicopter uh, to see what was going on. Uh, I remember somebody. This was right after the the film Black Hawk Down had came come out, and somebody yelled on the radio, Black Hawk Down, and I remember thinking, Well, that's kind of cliche, but um, <laughs> I. Um, I got it on the radio, um, cause there was just kind of pandemonium at that moment. Um, and actually, um, it had been a little confusing for people who, because it was just a chaotic scene who was in charge. So I remember, um, one of the rat team leaders yelling to his team and to anybody in the area Rollins is in charge. Rollins is in charge. And and that's when I kind of really seized like, all right, got to slow things down. So I called down to Timberline, to the Clackamas County Sheriff, and odd but I can remember verbatim, I I, I said, I presume you know the helicopter crash. (laughs) And uh, there's a pause, and yes, we're aware of that. So I said, all right, well, um, I don't want any more helicopters up here right now, so please don't send any more, and we will triage the scene. And I will let you know what the status is and who we need to evacuate in a few minutes. You know, Clackamas County is always great, and they were supportive of that. Um, So,
0: Steve, uh, what resources did you have at that time?
1: So, I had a lot of volunteers up there and a lot of medical people. We even had an ER doctor that happened to be climbing that day, helping out Steve Boyer, who um, may still, uh, and certainly did at the time... uh, hold the speed record for climbing Mount Hood. So we had some really talented people up there. And um, what I simply did was assign uh, a medical person to each patient on the mountain. So that was each member of the helicopter flight crew, and as well as the, the climbers that were remaining. And I took whoever was the senior most medical person at the time. And honestly, I can't remember who that was, but I remember I determined that they were the senior most person and I send them to go around and interview all the other medics and they would decide who was most urgent and had to go first.
0: Did anybody get injured during that crash?
1: Um, Yeah. uh, The flight crew were injured. In fact, um, at least two of them were rolled over multiple times because they were um, attached by a gunner's belt. So um, I think the worst injury on the helicopter was a lacerated liver and... That's something else I really remember. Um, this was a helicopter with the 304th pararescue team, part of the Oregon Air National Guard. And if you've worked with these guys, they are really the utmost professionals and there's no posturing and top gun BS. Um, these guys are very humble. They're always interested in learning new ways to, to do it. And you know that you're working with somebody that's pretty darn good if they don't have anything to prove. Um and I just remember, uh, when I just arrived at the helicopter, one of them took their flight helmet off and, uh, kind of shook his head. And, um, I remember him saying, um, uh, I don't want to get on another helicopter ever again. And I thought for guys as tough and as talented as the three or fourth pair rescue guys are, uh, that must have been one hell of a ride down the mountain in that helicopter.
0: I can't even imagine. Um, so what were the next steps?
1: Once the, um, Medic told me who needed to go first. It was simply a matter of coordinating uh, with uh, the search and rescue base down at Timberline and the Clackamas County Sheriff, which patient needed to be evacuated first. We slowed down the helicopters. Um, We did evacuate uh, the uh, climber off the Bergstrand which must've been super exciting for him since the first time we tried to pick him off, the helicopter crashed <laughs> second time. we're Don't worry, we got this down. <laughs> uh, so that, that was probably more exciting for him than anybody else. Um, and uh, I remember we sent some people down with um, litters and also with um, even the ski patrol uh, lugged one of their uh, ski patrol litters up there. And we sent a guy down like that when everybody was, uh evacuated um we still had three bodies because there's three three of the original climber or three of the original climbers that fell in the crevasse uh died pretty much on impact so we had to we had to recover their bodies and um i didn't want any more accidents so um i knew it'd been really stressful for everybody so i called everybody over to the hogs back and just said all right First, let's make sure that we're not missing a patient. So we did a quick head count, made sure everybody had been evacuated. And then I just gave a quick speech saying, we've got three bodies to recover. I don't want any more injuries. So everybody just take 15, 20 minutes, sit down, decompress, call a loved one. It doesn't matter. And um, uh, and we'll, you know, we'll reconvene here in a few minutes and then we'll start the, the body recovery process. I just started taking my own break to kind of decompress when it suddenly occurred to me that perhaps I should call somebody and let them know that I was okay. And of course, at that point, I didn't uh, realize that this whole event had been filmed live on television uh, and was being broadcast nationally and even internationally. Um, though I, I'm sure I assumed that the media was covering it because it was a certainly a big rescue. Um, and that's kind of a, on a personal level, something that's, uh, unique to my story in this. Um, fast forward a week later when the helicopter crashes live on the news, all my friends and family figure I was on the helicopter and I'm now dead. (laughs) So, um, I remember as I took that five minute break, I, I called my girlfriend who didn't answer. Um, so I was like, "Oh, I should call I should call Mom. That's right. Well, the phone didn't even ring, and boom, Mom was right there and uh, so thrilled to hear I was okay and not dead, and as I was, so uh, and then I just said, Look, I'm fine, I gotta you know finish doing this mission, and um so I will talk to you later um and really, after that, um we had more mountain rescuers coming from town, team more and more teams coming up, so my team was pretty exhausted after doing the crash and everything. So I really handed off the body recovery to the other mountain rescue teams and took my team down just to kind of decompress at Timberline.
0: Wow, Steve, what a story. Do you know how many people responded to that mission?
1: Oh, God, I have no idea. I I mean, for a mission like that, I think everybody in town dropped what they were doing and went. So I, I would guess that we had probably five different PMR teams of maybe five people. I don't know. Yeah, quite a few people. Um, and then all the climbers that were helping, and then Ski Patrol came up, American Medical Response Rap Team, the Reach and Treat team w- was helping out. Um, and then we had both the 304th Pararescue Squadron with their um uh, and the 1042nd Army Medivac out of Salem helping out. So it was kind of an all-hands-on-deck rescue.
0: One of the reasons we are recording that podcast is Um, The hope that we can all learn from all the accidents that we'll talk about here. Um, At the same time, I want to emphasize that accidents are just that. They're accidents. And it doesn't have to be anybody's fault. And we sure don't want to embarrass anyone. We want to talk about them in hopes that we can all take something away from this.
1: Um, Having done mountain rescue for 25 years, it's not uncommon for friends or family co-workers to ask me, you know, why do you go rescue those idiots? And, you know, people love to joke about Darwinism and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, my response is pretty much always the same, which is um, most people that we rescue are no different than you or I. And I am willing to bet you talk to anybody in Portland Mountain Rescue. And when they were um, early in their outdoor career, climbing career, they made mistakes and either got lucky and learned a lesson or didn't get lucky and either needed a rescue, um, you know, or fortunately didn't die. I can only think of a couple missions in 25 years where somebody made mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake, got injured, got rescued, and still didn't even understand what they had done wrong. Um, the, the truth is that Mother Nature is very unforgiving and little mistakes have big consequences. And that's why Search and Rescue and Mountain Rescue exists is because it could be you, it could be me, it could be our, our loved ones, and uh, they're not stupid. It's just easy to get in over your head in the backcountry.
0: Thank you so much for that, Steve. Um, I know um, I have a few stories that um, I would never share with other climbers, um, and I've been lucky for sure. Um, so having said that, um, can you talk about the cause or the mechanics of the accident?
1: So the mechanics of the accident, so on the surface, was we had multiple groups of rope climbers ascending and descending, the hogs back, at the same time. All these teams were roped up, but they were not using anchors to attach the rope system to the mountain. Uh, the system they were relying upon assumed that if one person fell and could not self-arrest, the entire rest of the rope team would go into self-arrest uh, mode and the, the rope team would self-arrest. We've seen over and over again that that doesn't work very well. There might be a very narrow range of conditions where that can work, but fundamentally, if it is steep enough to rope up, it's at least set aside glacier travel. If it is steep enough to rope up, it is steep enough to attach that rope to the mountain or go unroped so that if one person falls, it doesn't drag everybody else down the mountain together. Um, And this was kind of a worst case scenario where One of the upper rope teams was descending and the top person slipped and fell. And by the time, I don't know, let's say there was 50 feet of rope between the two climbers. So that top climber fell about 100 feet down a, you know, 40 degree slope, icy slope before all that energy was transferred to the next climber on the rope team, which then ripped off the next climber on the rope team after they fell. And they just simply dominoed down the mountain. Um, that full rope team went tumbling down and then closed lined the next rope team, knocking them off their feet. And all of them fell down the mountain and hit another rope team. So as a result, we ended up having nine climbers, um, fall in the crevasse. Three died. Four were seriously injured. Um, the people that died were generally the ones that fell the longest distance. Um, and, not only did they fall long distance, but they slammed into the lower lip of the Bergstrand crevasse. So it was a sudden deceleration injury. Um, the people that were just above the Bergstrand that just got knocked into it <clears throat> had lesser, lesser injuries, like um, you know sprained or broken ankles, that kind of thing. Uh, maybe I think there might have been dislocated shoulder, but less less serious. So,
0: so what lessons can we take away from this accident?
1: Well, there's lots of lessons to be learned. So um, I think one of the things that immediately jumps to mind is uh, what we often refer to as sheep syndrome, where climbers go up the mountain and they see other climbers climbing uh, and they see the techniques other climbers are using. They see the routes that other climbers are using and they assume if others are doing it, it must be safe. And PMR sees this all the time, that what the crowd is doing is not necessarily safe and so we really encourage climbers to uh, have good experience, good judgment, good, um, good skills, and think for yourselves. Don't just put your feet in other people's footsteps because they happen to go, even 100 people want those same steps before you. Look at the mountain, look at the conditions where rockfall, icefall is occurring, what is the condition of the crevasse. How many people are climbing and their skill level? Um, Are they looking competent or do they look like they might fall off the mountain? And you need to plan your route and your ascent and your descent accordingly. Um, One of the other things we certainly keep stressing, and I think we've made some pretty good progress with the climbing community around this, is not climbing while roped, unless you attach those that rope to the mountain. So on Mount Hood, that would generally be with snow pickets um, during the the south side climbing season. Um, Really, without attaching the rope to the mountain, you're just, the rope's only ensuring that no man dies alone. And I think it's particularly challenging for new climbers, which the south side of Mount Hood really attracts, because as a new climber, it's just human nature. They look at the rope as safety and the rope is not necessarily safety and they don't understand the system they're tying themselves into the dynamics, the, uh, the physics and the energy that, uh, can be stored in a system like that. And, um, we need to coach new climbers that the rope is not necessarily safety and, uh, explain the dynamics there and why it's important to know how energies. um, not only stored in a rope system, but also distributed during a fall.
0: So it might be a good idea to take some climbing courses and maybe attempt a uh, less ambitious mountain before climbing Mount Hood?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, people look at uh, Mount Hood as a beginner mountain. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, yes, it is a great uh, mountain to learn mountaineering on. But that's not to say that things can't go horrifically wrong very quickly. Um, When I've led new climbers on climbs of Mount Hood... Um, I make all this fuss and, and uh, teach them all these skills and everything, and if everything goes well, uh, they reach the summit and wonder, why was Steve so worried and what was, what was the big deal, right? What you don't realize is if the weather socks in, you can go from seeing Mount Rainier to I can't see five feet in a matter of minutes. Uh, you need the ability to navigate with zero visibility, you need avalanche knowledge to be able to assess uh, conditions and also potentially to affect a rescue if uh, an avalanche occurs. You need to know if you're going to use a rope, how to use that rope responsibly. Um, not knowing self, or excuse me, not knowing self-arrest, but mastering self-arrest so that if you fall, you are going to be able to arrest your fall immediately is a critical skill.
0: Another thing I want to talk about, Steve, is the timeline of the rescue. I, I don't think that many people realize how long it takes um, for us to get to them if there's an accident.
1: I think that's a, another thing that people don't realize when they plan to climb Mount Hood. They think that if there's an accident, they'll call 911 and they're going to get a rescue right away. Um, so a couple words on that. First off, uh 911 operators get a lot of calls that are in urban situations. They do not get a lot of calls from the summit of Mount Hood. So a degree of patience and understanding is required. Um, We have seen plenty of climbers that said that they were on the Hogsback or near Triangle Moraine and upset that the 911 operator didn't know what that was. Um, They're generally not climbers, so they're not going to know such things. That doesn't mean that that's not important information to convey, um, but you have to understand that you're telling somebody that doesn't know anything about what you're talking about. Also, you need to know when you call 911 on a cell phone, a cell phone is line of sight. So you're not necessarily getting uh, Clackamas County, uh, 911, or Portland. You might be getting Corvallis. You might be getting Yakima. Who knows where you're going to get? So um, you won't know that, and you need to explain it really helps out if you know what county you're in, which Mount Hood is bisected by both Clackamas County in the south and Hood River County in the north. So if you can tell the 911 operator, I'm in Clackamas County, I'm on the summit of Mount Hood, or I'm on the south side high on Mount Hood, and there's been a climbing accident, I need search and rescue or mountain rescue. That's a great way to start the discussion. Um, I remember once when um, I was helping... Uh, rescue somebody and wanted to let the sheriff know what was happening, so I called 911 from the summit. And the operator, uh, basically, I started the call saying, "Yes, this is Steve Rollins. I'm on the summit of Mount Hood. I'm a rescue leader with Portland Mount Rescue, and there's been a climbing accident." And I got about that far when the operator interrupted me and asked me for my address. <laughs> so I paused and said, "No, you don't understand. I'm on the summit of Mount Hood. I'm a client. There's been a climbing accident." And she interrupted me again and asked me for my address. And that happened three times until I finally said, okay, you're not listening to me and I'm going to lose my cell battery. So I need you to get your nose out of your script and listen. I'm on the summit of Mount Hood. You can call it one Mount Hood drive for all I care. There are no roads here. It's the summit of a mountain. I need search and rescue. Um, And it really took that to kind of snap that operator that, and it could have been a new operator, but it took that to kind of get them into the, Oh, there is no address. So stop asking for that. Um, and I'm sure in an urban situation, they probably would have been reprimanded for not getting the address right out of the gate. Um, so be patient, um, be clear, explain the nature of that, uh, injuries. Um, and, um, you know, if you can give coordinates, that's great. If you can stay on the phone with nine one one for 45 seconds Uh, They should get a very good GPS lock out of your cell phone. Uh, That is also very helpful to us. Um, And then you need to um, be self-sufficient because get comfortable. It may take some time. Uh, For Portland Mountain Rescue, we ask all our rescuers to be ready to respond to a mission within one hour of getting a call. Certainly we endeavor to respond immediately, but that's kind of the expectation that we set. Now, We all have families. We have jobs. um, We have traffic to fight. Uh, Some of us live out in Hillsboro. Um, We cannot uh, speed up the mountain. It takes time, just like it takes you to drive there if you're going to climb or ski. Uh, And when we get to Timberline, we don't just run up the mountain without a plan or any gear. We have to take the time to make sure we have a team, we have a plan, we have the gear we need because we can't go back and get it. And then we start up the mountain. And of course, even if we're getting a snowcat ride, that can be a, a good hour trip to get to the upper mountain from Timberline. Um, so the fact of the matter is that you could conceivably be there for a number of hours needing to be self-sufficient uh, before any kind of professional rescuers arrive.
0: I also had people ask me if uh, they can call PMR directly if they're in
1: trouble. <laughs> yeah, Um so if you get in an accident no you cannot call PMR directly. We uh serve at the pleasure of the county sheriff. We have a very strong relationship with um all the county sheriffs around and uh, I think they really respect us for our skill and our performance and um uh just the history of of being a very high performing team. But your call has to go to 911. 911 will then route the call to the county search and rescue coordinator that's on duty. So if that, and on the south side of Mount Hood, that will be the Clackamas County search and rescue coordinator. That coordinator decides what search and rescue assets he wants to call, whether he wants to call Portland Mountain Rescue or Clackamas um, County search and rescue. Uh, they can make a decision whether they can request a helicopter, but that does not necessarily mean we get a helicopter. Um so there's a lot of mechanics there, but it all starts with calling you calling 911.
0: Really good advice. So Steve, is there anything else that you would like to add before we part?
1: So I guess, you know, closing thought, if you are a climber and uh you have good judgment and you know you're at least a, a strong intermediate mountaineer, meaning you're not just a rock climber but you can lead rock climb, you can climb snow and ice, you're comfortable uh, on Mount Hood uh, and in similar, you know, uh, backcountry uh, situations, uh, you should consider joining Portland Mountain Rescue. Um, I can tell you I've had so many life experiences and have grown so much through the mentoring and uh, leadership that I've, uh, training that I've gotten from uh, other people in Portland Mountain Rescue, uh, fantastic friendships great stories for campfires uh it's a very very rewarding thing and really that's the wonderful thing about portland mount rescue um when climbers get hurt on the mountain the public sometimes says why don't we find climbers why do we rescue those nitwits and portland mount rescue uh is a great bookend to that to say no uh, Portland Mountain Rescue is a group of climbers that put their climbing skills to use to benefit the climbing the community as a whole. So yes, we rescue climbers. We also rescue snowboarders and lost skiers, scouts, hunters. Snowboarders, always snowboarders. Yes, the snowboarders. Uh, we have gone after plane crashes, suicidal meth addicts. You name it. Um, so the community is really benefiting from the climbing community directly through organizations like Portland Mountain Rescue.
0: And I can attest to that, that it's truly been a life-changing experience so far for me. And a little plug here, uh, we need more women rescuers. So if you're a woman and you feel intimidated, uh, please don't. It's been awesome. This is a great team. Everybody is very respectful, very welcoming, um, and we help each other all the time. We'll be holding tryouts in 2021. And we'll have a information night for everyone, but in addition, we also have a and a session for women, and I'll be there with my fellow female rescuers to answer any questions that you might have. We'll be announcing date, time, and place on our social media, so make sure you follow us on Facebook. We also have a website, pmru.org, so you can go and check us out, uh, find some more tips, And we also have an Instagram under Portland Mountain Rescue. Steve, it's always such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, Thank you so much for coming here and sharing your experience. And I hope you'll be back.
1: It's, It's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Rescue Radio. Before we go, show us some love for your favorite podcast by leaving us a review on your podcast app. You can also subscribe and give us some love.